Welcome again, everyone. Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3. We look at one of the most beautiful passages, one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture this morning, Romans 3, 21 through 31. the first seven or eight years of my academic career, I was a very mediocre student. Um, I mean, I read a lot. I loved reading. You're like, well, through seventh grade, who really cares? But <laughs> I mean, really, I, I was not very motivated to get good grades. Grades didn't matter to me. I just liked learning and liked school. Um, going into the eighth grade, uh, the school I was in, uh, North Bethesda Junior High, in Bethesda, Maryland, they offered eighth graders an opportunity toward the end of the year, really in May of your eighth grade year, the opportunity to go on an exchange program to Scotland for the month of May. Uh, it seems a little young in our age that you would send a whole bunch of eighth graders to Scotland for a month, but that was, that was the deal. The, our, one of our teachers in our middle school was from Scotland and had a relationship with the school over there. So they had this continuing program to offer to uh, take eighth graders. So uh, I had two problems. One, my grades were not very good. And number two, my family had no money. Uh, my dad was a pastor and had three kids. Uh, we were living in a church parsonage in Bethesda. And Bethesda is uh, a lot like Vestavia. It's, a, it's an upper middle class area of outside of Washington, D.C., so a lot of people had a lot of money, but it wasn't us uh, at the time, and so I went to my parents and said to them, hey, I want to do this. I want to go on this trip. Well, number of issues. Number one, I'd never been on a plane. I'd never traveled. I didn't have, you know, the issues were like huge standing in front of us to do it, but my parents, to their credit, said to me, if you can earn the money yourself, then you can go, and if you get your grades up. If you get the decent grades that are required and you get the money, you had a number of months to kind of make a decision. So I said, I, I'm going to do this. So I went out and got a job, which is a little hard when you're only 13 uh, in eighth grade. Uh, I actually called the newspaper, the Washington Post, myself. I don't even think my voice had changed yet, so you can imagine a 13-year-old calling uh, the post and saying, because I'd seen that they were looking for people to deliver the paper. And um, Anyway, I ended up getting a job delivering the Washington Post, and uh, I got my grades up, and so I got to go on the trip um, to, to Scotland. I earned the money, made the grades. One of the things it instilled in me was this attitude that if I want it, I can go and get it. Now, in some areas of life, that is going to suit you well. I mean, the, the, the drive to accomplish, the drive that says, if I really want this, I can, I can make it happen. By the way, I, I only got a couple of Bs the rest of my academic career. I learned how to make good grades. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, you can step it up at a different level you can earn, you can make money, you can do things if you have this drive and this desire. It's part of the American dream, is it not? That says, 
look, anybody can become this. Anybody through hard work, perseverance, no matter what your background, no matter who you were, you can become this. And as a result, we as Americans, we have this mindset that we don't, we don't really like charity. We, will, we like to grab it for ourselves. We want to we take it. Now, we'll take charity, uh, many of us, uh, but the idea is we want to win. A couple of years ago, there was this uh, guy who was a, a golfer. He, he was from Spain. He was winning the British Open. He's coming down. He's like three strokes ahead. And he just, on the 18th hole, he makes the stupidest shots in golf. Now, I, I'm not even going to say his name just because if you talk to people about the British Open that year, they don't remember who won. They remember who lost. And there's this deal about we don't like to give things away. We don't like to lose. And uh, if you've been watching basketball this week, for instance, we like the people who make those last-minute winning shots to, to take the game. But then we hate the, I don't even like the games where actually like the end of last night's game where I feel like one team just kind of gave it away. I mean, I was, listen, TV, sideline, I was for North Carolina because we have a family bracket. Uh, unless you said, me and my brother and all of our boys have a family bracket. And if North Carolina wins, my whole family wins. My side of the family, not my loser brother's side. But if Gonzaga wins, his side of the family is going to win because they picked, about three of them picked Gonzaga, most of my family picked Sideline, I'm back to the sermon. We want to win. We want to take it for ourselves. And let me just say, there's this whole mindset in the American culture that is permeated into the church that says, if we really want X, and usually X has to do with God and the blessings of God, then we have to take it for ourselves. The gospel is good news for this reason. No matter how hard you work, you can't take it for yourself. But God, who is rich in grace and mercy, has given you a means by which you can have a relationship with him. Romans 1.17 says, we read it this morning, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the theme verse for the book of Romans, that the righteous will live by faith. Now, we read it so many times that we just kind of get lost in it, but here's the question that should arise. Why is righteousness even necessary? Why do we need righteousness? The answer is crucial because it has to do with the nature of a holy God and his judgment about sin. Now, let me just walk you through up to chapter 3. I can't help but do this. I probably shouldn't, uh, but I can't help it because you, you take Romans 3, 21 through 31 out of its context, and it may be beautiful, but it doesn't really smack us like it should. Here's what Paul is saying in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. 
He's saying God has always been in the process of revealing himself. He has revealed himself through his created order. God is revealed in creation. Now, let me, let me sideline this just for a little bit. The biblical mindset is this, that God is in everything he has made. God is present in nature. Why do we stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look out and say, who could not believe in a God? Because those of us with a biblical view, a biblical mindset, we have it woven into us that God is present. God is in the stars. God is in... It's not, the, it's not that God is nature, but it's that God, the nature of God, is in everything. He's present because he created it all. Now, here's why this is a problem for a lot of Americans. We come from the philosophical mindset that something has no meaning unless I give it meaning. That's called nomianism. Unless I name something, name, nomia, nomia, uh, then it has no meaning. So I give it meaning when I name it. It's a table. Why is it a table? Because I named it a table. Therefore, it is. I think, therefore I am. We have this idea as Americans, so no longer do we stand on the edge of creation as a people and say, there is God. Instead, we stand on the edge of creation and said, wow, this was made through great floods, a lot of water coming down. Um, you know, the stars were made because of the Big Bang. We, we only see meaning in stuff through a scientific, rational viewpoint. Are, are you with me a little bit? So what is the difference here? The difference is I am now the center. I name I deduce, I reason, everything has to do with a rational mindset. The, Paul is saying, no, God is present because he made it all. And he is constantly in the context of revealing himself. If man will take his eyes off of himself and lift up his eyes, he will see there is a God. Then he says, God has revealed himself in our conscience. Why do we even think there is a right and wrong? Well, from the rational viewpoint, we would say we think there's a right and the wrong because we have determined, we've named what is right and wrong. And from a biblical standpoint, God is saying, the only reason you even can think that something's right or wrong is because I've placed a stamp in your heart a conscience in you that is revealing something is right or wrong. He goes on and says, God has revealed himself in Scripture, the Word of God. Every one of these levels of revelation of who God is is a little more intense. So creation, conscience, Scripture, the Word of God. And ultimately, he's going to say that God has revealed himself fully and most significantly in the person of Jesus Christ. So the bottom line that Paul is saying is this. God has revealed himself to everyone in some way so that men stand without excuse when they come before God and said, whoa, 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 how can you hold me responsible? I didn't know. 
I didn't know you were there. Paul says everyone stands without excuse because everyone has at least the first two levels of revelation and then the third and then the fourth present in their life. He then goes on to say because of this, God's wrath, his, his judgment is placed on every man because we've all sinned, right? Because God has revealed himself, at some level, we're hold, held responsible for the nature of this revelation. And therefore, God's judgment is turned against different groups of people. Well, the wicked makes sense. That God's, God's wrath is turned against the wicked. And then Paul is going to, he lists pretty intensely what the wicked look like. Now, by the way, we, we don't like this list. In this day and age, there's a lot of, there's some items on this list that we would not say are wicked. Again, I'll go back over here. Rational view. I get determined what's right, wicked. God's view. He determines what is right and wrong. Now, we can buck against it all we want, but God's, I, I don't get to make the list. He, he makes the list. So God's wrath is turned against the wicked. Those of us who are self-righteous, we say, well, that makes sense. But then he goes on and says, you know what? God's wrath is also turned against the moral. In other words, you think you're doing right, but if you've got one speck of wrong in you, God's wrath is unleashed on you. We don't even like the idea of the wrath of God. Um, the whole word wrath is, that's the word Paul uses. But what he's saying is, it's not you as much as the sin in you. That God's wrath is turned against that. Then he steps it up and he says, hey, God's wrath is turned against the religious. Those who think that they're doing right because they're following the law. Here's the problem, you can't follow it all on your own. Therefore, you stumble at any point, you stumble in the whole thing, God's judgment is against the religious. And finally, he just, he loops it all in. Okay, God's wrath is against the whole world. Why? Because he concludes, what shall we conclude then? There is no one righteous, not even one. Do you see this, what Paul is trying to lead to for three chapters till we get to the part where we're going to study today? It's this. There is a righteousness that's going to come by faith. Righteousness means right standing before God. We're going to be able to achieve right standing before God. Why do we need right standing? Because his, his anger against judgment is turned against the whole world because of sin. We need help. We need help, people. John Stott says this, All human beings of every race and rank, of every creed and culture, Jews and Gentiles, the immoral and the moralizing, the religious and the irreligious are without any exception guilty, sinful, inexcusable, and speechless before God. Somebody say amen. <laughs> we stand speechless before God. Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because a vast majority of Americans now believe that God will not send good people to hell. We believe that God will not separate 
You know, he, he, if I do good things, he's not going to send me out of his presence. Do you know almost, I hate to even say this, but almost 50% of the church also believes this now. Those within the confines of the American church, the stats are getting bigger and bigger every year, that more within the church also believe that God will not send good people. What is Paul saying? There's no one righteous, no one. No one's good. All our works are like filthy rags before a holy God. Well, it would be bad news, except Paul then turns around in Romans 3.21 and says, all of this has happened, but now, but now. These are some of the greatest words in all the Bible. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. God's righteousness has been given to us. God, in other words, we need to get into a relationship with the God who created us. We need to have right standing before him. Problem is we can't do it on our own. And Paul has made this really, really clear. And he's made it really, really clear also that the whole world stands in need of this. And everyone is without excuse before this holy God. And then in these next 10 verses, he unfolds why. Donald Barnhouse, who is a commentator, says this, I am convinced today, after 20 more years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the whole Bible. Understand them, and you will understand the whole Bible. Fail to comprehend their true meaning, and you will be in darkness concerning most of the Scripture. Well, that makes it sound like these verses are important, doesn't it? I, I want to know the Bible. I want to know what its meaning is. So let's delve into this a little bit. And again, I preached somewhat on these ten, some of these verses last week. We could delve into these, the depths of these verses for months. Um, there, there is a, a commentary by um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and... I forget how many volumes he writes just on these 10 verses. He, he dissects every single word. It is that rich. And we're going to go across the surface just a little bit today to see why is it necessary, this righteousness? Where does it come from? If it's so necessary, where does it come from? And how do we obtain it? If it's that important, how do we get it? Here's the bottom line. God is righteousness. He demands righteousness. And then he provides righteousness, which is the gospel. It is the good news. All right, here's the first point I want you to see. The source of this righteousness is God and his grace. God is in his grace. Have you ever thought much about the source of stuff? In other words, where does it come from? What is the source of things? There's a lot in our society, our culture right now, about fake news, right? I mean, you've heard of this whole term, fake news. Uh, 60 Minutes, I watched last week, they had a whole report on one of the sources of fake news. And the guy was trying to pin the, the, the dude down who was, he's an attorney, who writes fake news, and some of the stories that he's written you probably uh, heard because they become 
big stories during the campaign. So, for instance, the guy was asking this lawyer, the reporter was asking this lawyer and saying, I mean, do you really believe this story that Hillary Clinton has Parkinson's? And the guy goes, why not? And, and, the, and the reporter says, well, her campaign manager said that she had a cold. Well, that's what they're going to say. You know, they're not going to tell you she's got... I mean, there's this shadow cast on everything. Now, whether you believe Hillary Clinton has Parkinson's, I, I could turn out she does. I, I have no idea. But they went on with other stories that this guy has released, more and more outrageous, and he just said, I believe it. Why should I not believe it? Could be true kind of thing. Listen, we are, we love fake news. I... I, I I, I've seen this story on Facebook this past week, and if you've reposted this story, please do not. I, I, I don't be, uh, I'm not trying to point you out. But uh, a number of years ago, I saw this story about uh, this church in the Smoky Mountains that was given some land, and uh, they built a church building in a parking lot, and then on their final inspection, the inspector says, I can't give you your permit because you don't have enough parking. Well, the church was backed up to a mountain. It had no more land. They couldn't buy any more parking. They were stuck. And they went into this prayer meeting. And uh, the, uh, God revealed to the pastor that um, uh, they were gonna, he was going to take care of things. And this contractor came in and offered to buy the, the next day. A contractor came in, offered to buy the dirt behind the church because they needed it for a shopping mall they were building down the road. He came in, took the dirt, paid him for the parking lot. The church opened on schedule. Talked about mountain-moving faith. I really like this story. I was going to use it like several years ago. Here's the problem. It's not true. It is a great story, but the more you research it, no one can find this church anywhere. Now, if you research it and find the church, please let me know, because I would like to use the story as an accurate illustration. I mean, it's a great story. What is the problem? The problem is that if the source is corrupted, why is righteousness from God a big deal? Because God is the only uncorruptible, only uncorrupted source. He's the only one who could provide righteousness for us. In research, Sources are important. You know, when I was doing my doctorate, it was, much more, it was much more important that I had a source from a national journal than the National Enquirer, right? I mean, the quality of the source for my doctoral dissertation, it, it mattered. Here's the key. You are not a source for righteousness because you're corrupted. Do you understand? So no matter how many good things you think you can do in order to earn your way into God's presence, you can't because your source, every one of ours, is corrupted. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness is from God. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, how? Freely by what? 
His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are justified freely from his grace. Now, Paul is going to have a lot to say in the rest of the book of Romans about grace versus law. Why is law not a way to get into God's presence? Because, again, law is about what we do. It doesn't mean the law is bad. It just means if I try to do it according to the law, it's a, it's a works-based thing. And, again, it goes back to a corrupted source, which is, which is me. Bishop Hanley Moule says this, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, meaning God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. You know, I've heard this illustration before that, that if a ship goes down and it's a thousand miles from a coastline, that the greatest, Michael Phelps, is just as dead as me. You know, to pick the greatest swimmer in the world versus me. But besides, I only got one good arm, so I'd be swimming in circles. Uh, the point being this, we think because I, my balloon is a little higher than you, that I'm going to the moon. It's not. It's just a little higher off the ground than you. But that's how we judge. Sure, God's not going to judge me. Is he? God is the only source of this righteousness, this right standing. How does, he, how does he give it to us? What is the basis for his righteousness? It is Christ and the cross. Here's the question. We asked it last week. I just want to reiterate it because it's crucial. How is it possible for this uncorrupted, uncorruptible source, this righteous God, to provide righteousness to me who is unrighteous without compromising his righteousness or overlooking my unrighteousness? Now get the tape. I can't say that again. But I think you get the point. This is complicated. How is he going to make me right without making him unright and just overlooking my unright. He did it through the cross. It's made possible by the death of Jesus. And this is what is so unbelievable. It is at no cost to us, but a great cost to God. In verses 24 through 26, Paul is going to give us three pictures of what the cross accomplished for us. Now, I'm going to just highlight. I'm going to hit them high, and uh, you can look at them in depth later. But this theophany of righteousness, as it's called, this, this beautiful picture of righteousness that God provides is found in verses 24 and following. The first thing he says, which we've already looked, there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who, who has sinned? All. I mean, just, you know, glance around a little bit. And you'll see someone who sinned. I mean, that's us. All of us. I mean, we all are in the same boat. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. This picture right here is unbelievably rich. So let me hit the three things that Paul says about this. 
He says, first, and are justified, I love it, freely. We'll, we'll look at that in a minute. By his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The first picture of the cross that provides righteousness is this idea of redemption. I have been redeemed. And this is a marketplace analogy. In other words, and I know we don't like this, the, 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 the picture of slavery. Our, our nation has such a history of, of slavery and just the horrors of it. But it is the picture that Paul is painting here. That there is a person who is a slave and God has bought them out of slavery. Bought them out of slavery. Now what was the price that this slave cost? It cost the life of the one buying him. In other words, the price was so high on this slave that the only way it could do was be for the person who was not enslaved to put himself into slavery in the sense of death, to purchase the freedom, the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. I mean, people, if you really get a hold of this, this, is, this will break your hearts to say that a perfect, sinless Jesus purchased my freedom when he didn't have to by putting himself in my place. He redeemed us. He was the price that bought my freedom. Paul goes on and says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The, the, the word here, sacrifice of atonement, is really what I want you to see. Sacrifice of atonement, this is where the theological terms I kind of threw out last week, propitiation and expiation uh, come into being. One of them, the one that begins with P, uh, uh, propitiation, it means to, uh, that, that the wrath of God is appeased. Uh, in other words... Um, God's anger is turned towards sin. And I'm sorry if I keep putting sin over in this section. It's nothing personal. But God's wrath, I'll, I'll make them sin next week. How will that be? God's wrath, God's wrath is towards sin. How, how is God's wrath going to be taken care of? Well, the blood of Jesus, a sacrifice of atonement, appease. And, you know, we don't even like this picture. It makes it seem like God is on up in heaven and he's really mad and he's really angry. So his wrath, I'm really mad at your sins. I'm really mad. Oh, what is it going to take for me not to be mad? Oh, I'm going to kill my son. I mean, that's just whacked, isn't it? That kind of mentality that you think about it. But God hates sin so much that he can't overlook it. He is a holy, righteous God. And his wrath is turned towards sin. And the only thing that could cover it was the blood of Jesus. A sacrifice of atonement. The other word that's used here as sacrifice of atonement is the word expiation, which is not only did he overlook the sin, but he's going to remove it. out of uh, uh, He's going to take it out of our way so that we can walk into his presence. It, it, see, you see, sin is blocking you from God. So God is going to say... I'm not just going to overlook it. I'm going to take it away so that now you can come into. 
How can we boldly come into the presence of God and present our requests in time of need? Because Jesus became a sacrifice of atonement. Otherwise, I mean, redeemed, bought out of slavery, that's a good one. God not being angry, you know, overlooking, but this picture of him taking it away so that I can come into his presence, unbelievable. The third and final picture painted in these verses is this. Why did he do this? He did it to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now we read this passage and we're like, ooh, I don't know what all is going on here. Here's what Paul's, let me see if I can sum it up even though Paul brilliantly says it. Paul is saying, look, the whole temple and sacrificial system that was beforehand, that didn't really take care of the sins of the people. All it did was temporarily put off the punishment that was due them. So all the lambs that died, all the sacrifices that were made, all of that Ark of the Covenant stuff and the altar of incense and all of that what it was doing was restraining God's judgment against sin, just temporarily taking care of it. Anybody had an interest-only loan in here? Hello? <laughs> I'm still talking up here in case you fell asleep during the whole thing. An interest-only loan is I have this loan, but every month all I'm paying is the interest on it. Right? The, 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 the actual loan payment, I'm not doing anything against. I'm just kind of taking care of it month by month, paying interest each and every month. Now, it's not a healthy way to do your finances, but there are some reasons you can do it. The sacrificial system was kind of like an interest-only loan. It was just paying the interest on, it wasn't paying the principal. Jesus came. And he paid not only the principal, but all the interest that had been accumulated for all time and for all future time on the cross on that day. God couldn't overlook it. So God, in his justice, he took care of it on that day. You think the cross is important? There's something in our hearts that cries out for this this sacrifice. A number of years ago, you, you remember the Hunger Games, there's this series of novels, three novels, where it's a dystopian future, meaning not very hopeful, uh, future, where the United States is divided up into districts, there's been a rebellion, so as punishment, they bring these kids, it's a horrible story, they bring these kids Every, every year they have a drawing where kids that are teenagers get their name drawn out of a hat, two from every district, 24 kids or 12 districts, I think, is that right? 12, 24, something like that. Anyway, they draw their names out of a hat, they put them in a gladiator arena that's fancier, it looks, it's not an arena, it's really like an alternative world, but then they kill them all. It's a joy. Joyful book. Until only one survives. So, the beginning of the book, really, is this young girl, 12, 13, 
Her name gets drawn out of her hat, out of the bowl. Her name is Prim. I mean, she is so unqualified to go fight this fight. But her older sister, who is like 17, who's a little more qualified, steps up and says, I'm going to take my sister's place. I volunteer as tribute. Isn't that what she says? Something like that. Oh, you Hunger Games people. I volunteer as tribute. She steps in to take her sister's place to go fight the battle because she knows her sister's dead, but maybe she has a chance. Now, if you look at literature, this theme is present over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, I could name probably 10 books in just a couple of minutes from Harry Potter to Lord of the Rings to just a number of different ones where someone steps in and takes the place. Why? C.S. Lewis called this the great myth. Now, we don't like the term myth because it means something to us that it didn't mean to Lewis. Lewis means myth in the context of story. He says that there's this great story that's in us about who God is and what he wants to do in our lives. And it keeps coming out through ancient literature, through song, through painting, through everything else. And what is it doing? According to Lewis, it's pointing us to the cross of Christ. You know, the problem with all these minor stories that lead to what he calls the great story, the great myth, is that these minor stories, none of these people are really not guilty. None of these people can really pay the price. But it, there's something longing in our hearts that's pointing us to the cross of Christ. The cross where one takes our place, where the righteousness of God is now revealed in our lives. The source is God and his grace. The basis is Christ and the cross. How do we access this? It's faith. It is faith. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to who? All who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are several alls that are very important here. All have sinned, but all can walk in faith. I mean, if you look around here in this building, you'll see people of different ages, different ethnicities, different, what do you call it when you have different body sizes? Shapes and sizes, I don't know, there's a word, habitus? It doesn't matter. I'm getting lost. We look different. Different genders? I mean, people, here's the point. We're all different, except we're not. Because we have all sinned. And the punishment of God, the wages of sin is, is death. But the gift of God eternal life through Jesus Christ, through faith. All who believe can be people who walk in faith. It's by faith alone. Because Paul goes on and says at the very end of this passage, where then is boasting? 
it's excluded. On what principle? Of that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Here's the point. You can't be good enough. You can't. No matter what, you can't be good enough. But to all who believe, all have faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to the cross of Christ, which allows us to get back to the source, which is God, by means of His grace. Does this make sense? This is, I know it's, it, it, it can get complex and deep because it, it's rich, but it is the gospel. It is the good news for all of us who are here today. God saves you through faith. Now, I don't really have time to get into faith, really. Here's the unbelievable thing about faith. If faith were something I did, then it's back to me. But God loves me so much that he gives me the ability to have faith so that even that's from him. Then you start saying, wait a minute, if it's from him, but I don't have faith, then it's because he didn't give it to me. Does that mean it's all about him? Well, yes and no. Ultimately, it is all about him. And here's where theologians get stuck in a quagmire. I'll say this. Say yes to God. Say yes to him. He'll work out the economy of this. I've got some views on it, but who the heck knows if I'm right or not? But I know who is right, and that's God. He is right because he is righteousness. And he, I stand before him hopeless on my own, but I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus through the cross and faith. Hallelujah. In 1978, Dick Furman was on his way to Kenya with his family. He was going to volunteer his medical services. Uh, he was going to go do some free medical care in Africa. And as he was on the flight, he missed one flight, got put on another flight. And while he was flying, uh, they had this call that went out over and said, hey, is there a doctor on board? He came up to the front, because he was a doctor, and uh, there was a man in first class, which the doctor going on the mission trip was not, there was a man in first class by the name of Morris Schenker. Morris Schenker was having a heart attack. And so Dick Furman goes to the front, and he takes care of Morris Schenker and saves his life. Morris Schenker was the CEO of the Dunes Hotel in Vegas. And now he and Dr. Furman become good friends because Dr. Furman has saved his life. And so Morris Schenker invites Dr. Furman and his family to Vegas. Kenya or Vegas? What are you going to... Anyway, so after he gets back from his mission trip, he and his family go to Vegas, and he starts telling this guy, Morris, about Jesus. And Morris says, ah, I don't, I, you know, thank you for saving my life, but no, I really... Finally, Dr. Furman says, look, I'm not coming back to see you until you promise you're going to go to a Billy Graham crusade with me. To which Morris Schenker says, okay, I'll go. I'll go. Why not? You know, I owe you my life. I'll go. I'll go with you. 
After attending the meeting, Dr. Furman pointedly presented the gospel to the man he had physically saved, only to receive this following response. Here's the words Schenker gave him according to this book by Furman. I'm okay. I've given money to this revival, what he called the Billy Graham crusade. I send food to the needy. I'm a good person. God won't let me go to hell. Now, we sit here and we moan, but there is a world out there that believes this. There's a world dying that needs to hear the truth of the only way to get right in God's sight is through the cross of Christ. We have the riches of God's glory to share. We sang of the riches of God's glory. But it's not for the church to bask in the riches while there's a world starving. It is incumbent upon us to say the only source of this is God and his grace. The means by which the basis of it is the cross of Christ. And we, we have faith to offer to the world. I, I want to encourage you in the two weeks that are coming up to find just one person, just one, who you know needs this message. Now, you may not feel qualified like, oh, you just spent 45 minutes or more uh, telling us about this. I can't do that. I can't do that. Tell them your story. Don't, don't get caught up in all the theological, but just tell them your story. Here's who I was. I met Jesus. Here's who I am. I once was blind, but now I see. Right? I mean, when the theologian started pressing the blind guy on, hey, what happened? I don't know what happened, but I can tell you this. I was blind. Now I can see. You guys work out the rest. Listen, we've got that story to tell. And then just invite him to church. I, I promise I won't preach so long next week. But we'll talk about the glory of the cross and the sealing, life-giving resurrection of Jesus. Invite him to come with you. Most people don't go to church because somebody didn't ask them. I mean, a large percentage of people say, if somebody asked me, I'd go to church with them. Now, I know, you're going to find the one person who you're going to ask who's going to say, no, I don't want to go. Well, he didn't know what he was talking about. Probably true, too, but invite another one. Ask somebody else to come. Why? Why do we do this? We don't, I don't care if all the green chairs are filled up. What I care about is there, there is a city here that thinks it's going to heaven because they do good stuff. We live in a culture right around us. Birmingham is rife with this idea that, oh, listen, I went to church when I was little and I do good stuff, therefore I'm going to go to heaven. It's the cross of Christ, people. We have to keep offering it over and over and over again. And we, who are of the already committed, we have to pick up our cross daily and follow him being intentional about who we are in our faith. I, I, I could just keep going on and on about this because it it's piercing my heart. 
But my cry for us today is this. Know that God loves you. By his grace, he's reached out to you to the point of giving his son on the cross so that you can have right standing with him. Don't take it lightly. Walk in the life that he has provided for each and every one of us. Lord, we thank you this morning. You are a great God and greatly to be praised. And we are so, we're so grateful for your cross, for your life that's been given to us. And I pray this morning, Lord, first of all, I, I just pray if by chance there's somebody in this room today who doesn't know Jesus by faith. Maybe they know the stories about Jesus. Maybe they know some truths about Jesus, but they've never walked in faith and received the forgiveness of sins and following Jesus Christ as the one who leads their life, God, let them, let them come to you today. Open their eyes to see who they are, where they are, and what they need. Let them come to you by faith. Oh, God, we're so grateful. May we just say yes to you and everything you are this morning. Lord, for those who are here who need healing, touch them with healing life. For those who need direction, the Spirit of God, speak truth to them. For those who need relationships restored, God, do what only you can do. Lord, for those who need not just to receive forgiveness, but to offer forgiveness. To someone who's offended them, Lord, let them walk in true forgiveness. Open their eyes to see where maybe they're blinded to the truth that they think they've forgiven, but really haven't. God, just do what you want to do during this time as we offer ourselves up to you this morning in Jesus' name. Stand up with me if you would. Ministry teams, if you would quickly come to the front. If you need prayer for anything, healing, direction, if you need to receive Christ as the one who leads your life and forgives your sins, maybe God is just stirring in some way in your heart and life. Mitch is going to lead us through one song. We're going to pray. Our ministry teams will stay as long as we need uh, people to receive prayer. Just come right now if you need prayer as Mitch leads us and directs us. If you don't need prayer, just do this. Just, just worship and focus and say, God, who do you want me to reach out to with the good news of Jesus Christ in the week ahead? Mitch? I will sing for you alone have rescued my heart. Jesus, you have set me free. You alone took away my sin and disgrace when you gave your love to ransom me. I'm forgiven at the foot of the cross I 